0: So please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can, and often does, happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening.
1: Hi there. Hello there. Welcome. Welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB, and thank you for coming out on this gorgeous day. Or my usual co-host, Matt Matthew Kressel, is in uh, Barbados. Barbados, the bum. He sent us a picture, which is nice. And I thought we should send him pictures back of what we're doing here, or where we are. Uh-huh. But anyway, uh, welcome. You know the deal. Most of you have been here before. Um, if you want to come to these readings regularly, you can sign up on the <laughs> Fantastic Fiction at KGB page. And the only thing we send you are notices about this every month, like twice a month. <clears throat> so, KGB um, doesn't charge it, there's never a cover charge. What we hope for is that you will buy a drink, e- either non-alcoholic or alcohol, to keep the bar going and tip your bartender as well, as Dan and Sagey. And uh, we have a bookseller for the first time in several months, of oh. course. However, um, yes, Greenlight Books, our bookseller has run out because she brought the wrong book, she's coming back. Oh. So please no. buy books at the intermission. You know, <laughs> She will be back, this is not our bookseller. But hi there. <laughs> but she will be back by you know by intermission, with the correct books. You can buy the incorrect books. I don't know who those are buying, but I'm sure they'd appreciate sales of those too.
0: Yeah, right. I'll I'll
1: do that. Sure. So anyway, um, our first our first. Oh, and please welcome David Mercurio um, Rivera, who is my co-host tonight. Okay, our first reader, I would like to introduce Pung Shepherd, who was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona, where she rode horses and t- and trained, oh sorry, and trained in classical ballet and has lived in Beijing, Kuala Lumpur, London, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Washington D.C., New York, and now Las Vegas, apparently. Her debut novel, The Book of M, was chosen as an Amazon Best Science Fiction and Fantasy Books of the Year. And has been featured on The Today Show, NPR On Point, and in The Guardian, uh, IO9, Gizmodo, Sci Fi Wire, and El Canada. Uh, and I believe it's been optioned for a yeah, TV show. Yesterday. That's in the <laughs> And you can find her at uh, Pungshepherd.com or on Twitter, at Pungshepherd. Okay, so please welcome her.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Um, hi everyone. Good evening. Thank you so much for um, braving the weather and um, coming out to hear us read tonight. And um, also thank you to Ellen and um, David and maybe not Matt because he's in Barbados <laughs> 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 for putting it. <the>, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for um, putting this event together tonight and inviting us. Uh, so uh, I'm. Can everybody hear me? Do I have this at the right angle? Um, I'm going to be reading from uh, the book of M tonight. It's my first novel. It came out uh, in June of last year. And just to uh, give you the premise very briefly before I jump right in, um, the book is about um, a mysterious phenomenon that causes people's shadows to disappear, which... um, also causes them to lose their memories. And these shadowless people, as they're called in the book, um, they realize that as they start to forget things, they're now able to also kind of shape the world through that forgetting and alter reality, um, which opens up a lot of like very strange and, and potentially very dangerous possibilities. Um, so I'm going to read to you from two sections tonight. Uh, both fairly early in the story. Most of the book takes place a couple years after everything kind of collapses and civilization is is destroyed. Um, But this first excerpt is a flashback to the day that the very first person, who's a man in India, loses his shadow, um, as remembered by one of the main characters. And the second excerpt happens a couple months after that when the shadowless plague has um, spread outside of India into neighboring countries and it's, things are starting to get kind of scary because we can't figure out a way to contain it yet. Uh, but the main characters all live out here with us on the East Coast and so it's still a little bit of a distant kind of fear to them because it hasn't yet reached the U.S. until, of course, then it does. Oh, also, there's a... Um, Fun little astronomy fact, if anyone's into, into that. Um, in, uh, in this first excerpt, there's something called Zero Shadow Day, and the rest of the novel obviously is fantasy, um, but the day itself and what happens on that day every year as described in the text is, uh, is completely true. Nas had almost tuned out the vague blinks of color coming from the TV as they laughed drinking and snacking on a cheese plate, but something caught her eye. A red news ticker at the top of the screen flashed, breaking news. That's when she first heard the name Hemu Joshi. There was an annual festival that day in India, so the local news crews were already out in the bigger cities, including Pune. They'd been on Hemu for all of seven minutes before someone working for an international station caught sight of their live feeds. Everything exploded. Within six hours, It was on every channel and website in the United States, and crews from every country were touching down in Mumbai and frantically renting cars by the dozen to drive three hours away to the outdoor spice market in Pune. Naz and her friends all stared transfixed at the screen, unable to look away. At the time, none of them knew that they should actually have been terrified. Instead, they were fascinated, obsessed, and Hemu obliged them, he stood gamely in the street of the market's largest aisle for those first three days, giving demonstrations to curious passersby. No matter how many times he did it, it never got old. Nas could watch him for 12 hours straight, with breaks only to microwave food and bring it back to the couch. First, Hemu would, say, would smile and say something, to prove he was real and that it was live, not a tape being looped. Then he'd hold out his hand, or stand on one foot and dangle the other in the air. The street children who had been haunting him like little ghosts since that first moment would giggle and run circles around him. News sites were filled with vibrant images of those kids playing with him, laughing, dust swirling around them, the oranges and the purples of the open air spice stalls throbbing with such rich color that it made Nas squint. Fortune tellers made their way in rickshaws and on bicycles to every corner of the city to look upon this new wonder. Cripples were carried to Hemu by their relatives as if he could somehow cure them. Fathers were in the street, waving pictures of their daughters. By the end of the first day, Hemu had 62 marriage proposals, all from extremely wealthy families. There was a picture of Hemu's mother trying to hold all of the photos of prospective brides being pressed upon them. She would pulled down the shoulder sash of her sari to use it like a makeshift basket. But there were so many pictures that they overflowed, the faces, the tiny faces of so many beautiful young women escaping her arms like dragonflies. Flitting away down the crowded street. The day before, Hemu had been a junior customer service representative at a call center for a US cell phone company and a second string amateur cricket player for the Maharashtra team, a glorified bench warmer. He'd batted once in the last 50 games, if that. Now, he was almost godlike, something out of a fairy tale or a science fiction film. The world was captivated. Hemu Joshi was the first person to lose his shadow. There were attempts to turn his mystery into science, of course, and actually, there was some science to it. It was an obscure astronomy fact, but Nas had learned it from her sister, Rojan. It turned out that actually, in a few countries, shadows disappearing happened every single year on a specific date. It sounded impossible, but it was true. It had to do with the angle of the sun and the seasons, the lands between the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn, and sometime in early summer, to be exact. No matter where you live, you always think of the sun as directly above you at noon each day, but that isn't actually true, Rojan had explained to her once, when they still lived in Tehran. Nas had then tried to explain it to her friends as they watched him on TV. The looks on their faces had made her laugh. But it was true. The earth was too big and too curved. Even though it looked like it, the sun was actually never exactly overhead. Except in India, on a certain day in mid-May. Or as the locals called it, Zero Shadow Day. The most insane, unbelievable thing, and it happened every year. Rojan had always wanted to visit. Zero Shadow Day had become a small festival there over the decades, celebrated with basic astronomy lessons, parades, and kite flying. Every year just before noon, Huge crowds would flock to open squares in the market to wait for the moment that the sun was so exactly poised above them that their shadows would disappear for a few stunning seconds. Teachers encouraged kids to place various objects in the street, flashlights, basketballs, cricket bats, to see if they could outsmart the sun. They never could. Under the rolling hum of hand drums and sitars, as the earth and sun became perfectly aligned, all the shadows in the city and beneath the people slowly would shrink to tiny dark specks on the ground, vanish, and then come back as the earth rotated on and away, always. A perfectly scientific explanation. There just wasn't any scientific explanation for why after that brief window, everyone else who was outdoors on that day watched the dark shape of themselves flicker back into form beneath them while Hemu Joshi stayed shadowless and free. No explanation, but magic. So for three magical days, the entire world watched Hemu Joshi dance around untethered to the earth, captivated by the incomprehensible beauty of it. Flights and hotels were monstrously overbooked. People were sleeping in restaurants and on the streets. Television channels played his clips endlessly. Poetry was written about him. He even appeared to Naz in her dreams. Scientists went wild but not a single one could prove exactly what was going on. And the day after Hemu's shadow disappeared, news broke that it had also happened to a group of 80-something people a few cities over. The news started calling them the Angels of Mumbai. It didn't sound silly at all. And a day after that, it happened to a group of 15 in Ahmadnagar and a group of 12 in Nashik. The reports kept coming in late into that third evening as more and more scattered cases across India were found. Family after family, village after village. It was like watching a miracle. When she heard about the angels of Mumbai, Nas actually thought that they were all about to transcend into some kind of higher existence. And as ridiculous as that kind of statement sounded when uttered out loud, the world was so in awe that she didn't feel self-conscious, not even a little. She was standing wrapped in a towel in her bathroom, dripping everywhere, waving her arms around and declaring it to one of her friends in the toilet while she brushed her teeth and she didn't feel silly or dramatic in the slightest. That's how taken the world was with it. And then on the fourth day, it all started to go horribly wrong. Hemu Joshi had probably been forgetting things since that first moment of Zero Shadow Day, but it wasn't apparent until the morning of the fourth day. Nas had gotten up early and turned on the TV so she could watch Hemu while she fried some eggs for breakfast. The sizzle from the skillet garbled the reporter's voiceover, but the view was familiar. Since Zero Shadow Day, Hemu had been living exactly where he was first spotted, outdoors in the center of the market, disappearing only to quickly change clothes or go to the bathroom. There had been such a desperate outcry on that first night when he tried to go home to sleep that his two brothers had given in and dragged some bedding out and down the crowded winding streets to him. Now the three of them camped in the center of the breezy, fluttering textiles aisle. Something was strange though. Since Nas had turned on the TV, only Hemu's brothers had been on the screen instead of Hemu, and they looked concerned, not friendly. One of them was shouting, no cameras. The other brother reached toward the cameraman, and the screen went dark as his hand grabbed the lens and yanked it down. What you just saw was our most recent footage of Vinay and Rahul Joshi, Hemu Joshi's brothers, taken just minutes ago. The screen abruptly cut back to a sharp-shouldered, severe news anchor. Since five this morning, India Standard Time, Joshi's family has refused the media access to Joshi after he was found wandering through the business district of Pune, apparently disoriented and Nas turned off the burner, leaving the eggs half done and still translucent in the pan and went to get her laptop. By the time the yokes had hardened into a yellowy mess, she had pieced together what had happened. When the news crews woke up and turned the cameras back on at dawn, they realized Hemu wasn't sleeping beside Vinay and Rahul anymore. A search was mounted, and that's when they found Hemu stumbling around the opposite end of the market, confused and agitated. He was shouting at the crowd that he didn't want to be followed, and he was sick of the news crews, which was understandable. But when his brothers pushed to the front of the mass, that's when the strangest thing happened. Hemu didn't recognize them at all. Most of the news crews were still obsessed with getting a shot of him, the man who had captured the attention of billions. But there was a second-rate team from some American gossip channel following a group of 12 shadowless girls and boys in Nashik who turned this from a curiosity to a tragedy. Their cameraman and reporter started sending video back to their little news studio in Los Angeles. But within minutes, it was all over the international networks. The Nashik kids were also starting to forget things. Okay, so now we're gonna skip a couple months ahead. Um, This scene is from the point of view of one of the other main characters, Ori, um, who is in this chapter attending a wedding uh, with his wife, Max. And just before the scene starts, the groom overhears the caterers telling each other that they've just heard that the shadowless plague has reached the US for the first time in Boston. Uh, and I think the only other thing you need to know is Max and Ori met at a football game uh, when they started dating. And so they have this like little secret way of saying I love you to each other. One says blue and the other one always answers 52. And that's like their, their little thing. And it plays out a lot in the book. By midnight, word had spread throughout the wedding party. The courtyard was deserted, champagne glasses abandoned half full where they were, and everyone was crowded back into the ballroom. Some were on their cell phones, and the caterers had turned on the TV bolted to the wall in the corner of the room. Don't, Max said. She put her hand over Ori's to stop him from opening the browser on his phone, cradled now in his palm. They left their apartment in DC late that morning, and hadn't packed a charger in the rush to make it to the wedding on time. Save the power, just in case. It wouldn't matter. Cellular signal would go down in another day or two before they'd run out of battery. But they didn't know that then. Ori nodded gratefully at her good thinking and edged the device back into his pocket. On the screen, helicopter footage cut between downtown Boston and one of the larger highways out of the city beneath a reporter's voiceover. The National Guard had circled the metropolis and blocked all routes in and out, putting the entire population under indefinite quarantine. There was a mini screen in the bottom right corner running at the same time as the live feed. It was a rerun of the president's speech that had apparently aired half an hour before when the news about Boston first broke. He was in the middle of assuring the public that the nation's top scientists were working around the clock to figure out the cause of the epidemic. The world was still calling it the epidemic then as if it was some kind of simple biological quirk some twisted proteins or mutated virus that could be solved by the right vaccine and advised everyone not to travel except in emergency circumstances stay safe stay inside limit travel and limit contact with others whenever possible his grainy image repeated we are doing everything we can to find a way to neutralize the spread i promise you as soon as we discover a cure will be sending Red Cross agents door-to-door through every neighborhood to distribute it. His voice was calm, but the message was clear. Do not go to the hospital. Do not go to the grocery store. Do not go outside. Now, it was clear that the forgetting was not contagious. At least, it didn't seem like it was. The number of times that Ori had been curiously examined or attacked by a shadowless while out scavenging, the number of random survivors he'd tried to help in the early days who later succumbed, and he was still here, still a hole. If it had been contagious, he'd have lost his own shadow years ago. But back then, as they all huddled in the ballroom, watching nervous soldiers try to say, then yell, then desperately mime, instructions to stop and turn back around to the confused, terrified, shadowless man approaching them, no one knew if it was or wasn't something that could be passed by breath or touch. Everything else in the world had always worked that way. At the time, there was no reason to think this was any different. They couldn't be blamed for what happened then. The president's little speech box disappeared and the split screen suddenly dropped the view of downtown to focus only on the highway feed as the commotion started. A shadowless man had wandered away from the city and was now stumbling toward the line of soldiers, crying but not saying any words or seeming to hear the ones being shouted at him. He looked to be in his 50s, still strong but starting to bald and beginning to grow a middle-aged paunch. He wore brown corduroys, a button-down shirt, and a navy blue sweater over it, pristine in the harsh blaze of the emergency floodlights. He looks like a university professor, Ory thought dazedly, a university professor with no shadow. The soldiers were screaming now, some waving, some holding an open hand straight out in the universal gesture to stop stop or we have to shoot, we have to shoot to kill. The man didn't seem to recognize or remember any of it at all. The station tried to cut away, but they weren't fast enough. Several guests in the ballroom screamed as the shadowless man on screen snapped to a halt, frozen upright for one lingering instant, and then crumpled to the ground. The news anchor materialized on screen again, disoriented and unprepared, stumbling through a statement that was being fed to him through his earpiece. We want to apologize for that graphic video clip. It was not our intention to air such an upsetting image. Unfortunately, the nature of live news sometimes... My God, Ori, Max murmured, her whole body tense. Do we know anyone in Boston? Do you have friends or family there? People had started arguing now, some calling for calm, others shouting across the room to each other for any new information they could dig up on their phones. Someone had a laptop out and was trying to connect to the hotel Wi-Fi. I don't think so, Ori said, but his head was swimming. He felt dizzy. This is really bad, Max kept saying. This is really, really bad. Ori tried to refute that, to be the strong, steady one who would keep both of them anchored, but he couldn't find the words. The TV was back on the helicopter camera hovering over Boston city limits, the body of the fallen shadowless man still in the street, this time pixelated into an indiscernible mass. Ori couldn't tell for sure, but it looked like even in death, the shadow hadn't returned. The thought sent a chill through him. The National Guard were still shoulder to shoulder across the road, looking shaken, as if they were clinging to one another instead of forming a blockade. They suddenly tensed, and their guns rose again from their downward angle to a point point straight forward with agonizing dread. More shadowless were approaching, some running, some screaming, some silent. This time, the station didn't waste any time. The screen cut back to the anchor at the desk, who was scrambling through freshly scribbled papers and a blaring earpiece, trying not to listen for the sound of impending gunfire through the tiny speaker. Mid-speech, he stammered. A long, horrible pause. He closed his eyes involuntarily. Then he opened them and kept talking. Ori glanced around the room and swallowed hard to try to calm himself down and looked back at the screen. Then he heard the anchor say something about Denver. He pulled Max closer, wrapped his arms around her, and squeezed with everything he had as the news cut to a reporter in Colorado. Someone had begun to sob. Hey, he said as he crushed her into the hug. The shocked, rising hum of too many voices at once echoed off the stone walls of the ballroom. Shouts and ringtones blended into an eerie, doomed musical harmony. He wanted to say something comforting, to sound like he was there for her, to make it feel like it was all going to be okay. But the fear had numbed his mind. Blue, he finally managed, no more than a whisper. 52, she whispered back.
1: take a break. Um, are the books here? Uh, yeah. She didn't uh, get yeah, back there, yet.
3: She said should be here
1: at 7:40. Hopefully, yeah, we should be running back. So anyway, we'll take a break for about 10-15 minutes.
3: Folks, we're ready to get started again. Thanks for coming out on this uh, snowy evening to listen to these two great readers. Uh, I want to thank um, Ellen and, and Matt for allowing me to guest host tonight. And um, I'm David Mercura-Rivera. And uh, thanks, Ellen Datlow. Thank you, Matthew Kressel. And I want to welcome tonight our new bookseller, uh, Greenlight Books, which is in the back right now. Welcome. And uh, please, buy a copy of the books and support the uh, authors and our our new bookseller. And the authors are here, and they're more than happy to give you an autograph. So. For those of you who are unfamiliar with this particular spot, I thought I'd mention the the fact that um, back in the 1950s, this used to be a speakeasy for Ukrainian socialists who hid their political affiliation and they met here in secret because it was a time of uh, rampant McCarthyism. And then in the 1980s, it became an art gallery. And then uh, it reopened in 1993 as a bar and has become since then a literary institution. In the late 1990s, this reading series began. Um, two of the early earlier co uh, uh, hosts were Terry Bisson and the late Alice Turner, who shepherded this series along, and it's been going strong ever since. Now, um, under the stewardship of, of Matt and Ellen, so it's a real honor for me to be guest hosting here tonight.
1: Are you going to be doing it again? Both of us are out of town. Oh, just going to be me. <laughs> I'll, <laughs> no, be fi- I'll so have to find a guest <laughs> host. Okay. In August, we're both skipping
0: town. Put up my number.
3: Okay. <laughs> Uh, uh, again, please have a drink, either hard or soft, to support the bar. And it is my honor now to introduce our second reader. That's right, Ellen. Thank you. Ellen <laughs> mm-hmm. makes Ellen is editing as we go along. Yes, uh, we have some really uh, great readers coming up in the next few months. That's a very exciting lineup. In March, we have Molly Tanzer and Carrie Laban. Mm-hmm. April we have uh, Nathan Ballingred and Arcady Martin. In May we have Simon Stranzis and Kaya Shante Wilson. June Chuck Wendig and Keith R. A. DeCandido. Very exciting. July Caldwell Turnbull and Theodore Theodore Goss. August Lara Elena Donnelly and Paul Whitcover. September, Sarah Beth Durst and Sarah Pinsker. And in October, Nicole Corner Stace and Barbara Krasnoff. So we have a lot to look forward to, so this is great. Um, I'll take a pause and. They're celebrating. They're, they're taking away our second you know, reno. Our next reader tonight is. Um, We'll give it a second. This is what they call a dramatic pause.
1: Sound effect.
0: Okay, here we go. All right,
3: it is my pleasure now to introduce our second reader of the night, F. Brett Cox. F. F. Brett Cox's debut collection, The End of All Our Exploring Stories was published by Fairwood Press in 2018. His fiction, poetry, plays, articles, and reviews have appeared in numerous magazines and anthologies. With Andy Duncan, he co-edited the anthology Crossroads, Tales of the Southern Literary Fantastic. He is a co-founder of the Shirley Jackson Awards and currently serves as Vice President of the SJA Board of Directors. A native of North Carolina, is, is Charles A. Dana Professor of English at Norwich University, and lives in Vermont with his wife, playwright Jean Beckwith. Ladies and gentlemen, F. Brett Cox.
4: Well, thank you, David, um, for that generous introduction. It is wonderful to be back at KGB. It is wonderful to be in New York, even in such um, in circumstances. Uh, although I have been living in Vermont for a long time, so um, uh, I'm not going to make any snarky remarks along the lines of you call this snow because trust me, trust me, snow is snow. Um, I was uh, puzzling over what to read tonight and since the uh, good, uh, folk, or good bookseller folk have the book here, I thought I'd read a couple of things from the collection, The End of All Our Exploring, and there are a lot of different very different kinds of stories in here, although I did reassure my friend, uh, author Christopher Rowe, that there was some sense to the organization of the stories. He was very confused about that. There was a subtle threat of, you want me to read your book, it better make sense. And uh, and I think it does, but uh, I'm going to read an excerpt from one of the longer stories, and then I'm going to read a uh, very, very short, complete piece. And on the one hand, they're kind of the Alpha and Omega of what you might find in the book. On the other hand, what they have in common is that both stories uh, came into being because I was found two different things that I decided I wanted to hook together in a story. Uh, in the first one I'm going to read an excerpt here, um, The Serpent and the Hatchet Gang, the two things were 19th century temperance riots in Rockport, Massachusetts, and sea serpent sightings off of Cape Ann in Massachusetts. So, temperance riot, sea serpent, sure, why not? Um, The viewpoint character is a young woman named Julia. She's just attended a meeting with some of the uh, temperance folk in the town who have decided that it is tomorrow when they're going to go after the Dens of Iniquity and uh, the woman referred to in this passage, Hannah Jumper, is an actual historical figure. As they made their way down High Street, Julia, still full of the meeting and the righteousness of their cause, reiterated much of the evening's discussion. Hannah remained silent, her heavy shoes clopping on the cobblestones. When they reached the inner harbor, rather than turning right to continue to their respective homes, Hannah stopped, facing the water. Julia followed the old woman's gaze into the harbor. The fishing boats rested at their moorings, looking like charcoal drawings beneath the dim light of the half moon. They had not been out to sea in over a month. On one of the larger boats on the outer edge of the harbor, several figures moved around the deck. Julia could not make them out individually, but she heard rough laughter, the shattering of glass, a bellowing voice. She was mine, damn you! Who said you could get under her skirts before me? More laughter and the sawing of a fiddle. Although she knew it was impossible at such a distance, she could almost swear she smelled their liquor across the water. Julia shuddered. After tomorrow, perhaps we'll have less of that. Hannah stared out past the boats in the profanity. Julia looked up at her. For a moment, the old woman's face was obliterated by the darkness, and she looked like her bonnet and her dress and nothing else. They should stay on the boats. Hannah said, "They should stay on the ocean. They can't harm the ocean. Maybe the serpent will get them." Julia said, and then instantly remembered Hannah's harsh dismissal of Esther at the meeting. "Oh, I know, Hannah. It's just nonsense. Forgive me." Hannah said nothing in response. Then she turned sharply away and said, "Long past home we were home. Chi- long past time we were home, child." They proceeded down Mount Pleasant Street, past Hannah's house. Julia tried to get Hannah to stop and let her make the remaining short walk on her own but the old woman refused. As they turned down Long Cove Lane, Hannah asked, somewhat to Julia's surprise, if the chamomile she had sent to Julia's Aunt Martha had helped with her digestive difficulties. The women of Rockport paid Hannah to mend their dresses, but far more valuable and free in the bargain was the harvest of Hannah's herb garden, horseradish for a sore throat, catnip to sleep, pennyroyal for a chill, pipsisowa leaves for the heart. Julia replied that her aunt was much better and expressed her admiration for Hannah's skills. I wish I could cultivate herbs as well as you. I tried planting some rosemary last season, and it just didn't take. Put rosemary close to the high-water mark. It gets its strength from the sea. As Ju- at Julia's doorstep, Hannah bade the young woman goodnight. Rest well, child. You'll need all your wits about you tomorrow. Julia promised that she would and watched the old woman retrace her path down the street and disappear around the corner. Later, with the lamps an hour dark and sleep nowhere close, Julia stood before her open bedroom window. The moon was gone and the land and the ocean and the horizon were dark, unbroken carpet over the world. But she heard the ocean and felt it in the breeze that chilled her through her night clothes and smelled it. If she opened her mouth, she knew she could taste it. There was nothing to see but much to remember. Two years ago, next month, she had heard the stories everyone had the summer of eighteen seventeen fourteen years before her own birth hundreds down in gloucester most more reliable than not had seen it from ten-pound island to western harbor they had shielded their children and grabbed their telescopes or set out in one of their boats Their reports were almost all the same, 50 to 100 feet long, thick as a barrel, dark on top, lighter on what of its belly could be seen when it raised itself from the water, a head the size of a horse's. Some claimed it was segmented. Others noticed its vertical undulations. It could turn on a dime and raced away when approached. Several had tried to kill it, of course, even as one newspaper suggested they should be grateful to it for driving Herring into the harbor. The Linnaean Society of New England had formed a committee, Harvard men, of course, to investigate. But being too busy living inside their own heads to come and see for themselves, the committee members had sent a list of questions to the justice of the peace with a request for him to interview the witnesses and send them the results. Things might have held steady at that point or even faded away but a couple of months later the Colby's found a humpback snake over a yard long on their ground near Loblolly Cove. They killed it and examined it and they remembered one or two people claimed to have seen two serpents in the harbor. Could this be offspring? The Linans got hold of it, dissected it, gave it a Latin name and declared that well yes it might be kin to the creature in the harbor. But then another Harvard man came along and proved that it was just a deformed black snake. The next summer there were more sightings in the harbor and things looked as if they were getting heated up again. But when the creature came up to Squam Bar near the lighthouse and a Boston captain chased it down in a whaleboat, only to discover that he had harpooned a horse mackerel, most of Cape Ann was ready to forget anything ever happened. The following year, dozens more saw the same thing just off the shore, down at Nantucket. But by then, the Linans had given up, the Boston captain had disappeared, and people were making fun of the gullible Yankees all the way down to Charleston. They were all just stories Julia had grown up with, and she didn't regard them as anything more or less. And then she saw it herself. <coughs> the, her husband, Joshua, had been out with the boats, and he had not, she had not been sorry to see him go. The summer doldrums had lasted longer than usual, giving him more time to drink and curse the fish because they weren't there, and her because she was. It could have been worse. Abigail Hancock's husband used her so badly that both the town constables had intervened, and Mr. Hancock, after he sobered up, left abruptly for a rumored family in the Maine woods. But the memories of the young man of promise and passion she had married against the sullen wreck who stared emptily out of the waves as he swigged his rum were almost as bad as the bruises she managed most of the time to hide. Almost. $157 for nine months' work was no life for anyone. She understood. She felt his entrapment. But he had no right to take it out on her. He had no right to do that. She had been out in the rocks at Bearskin Neck in the early morning, looking out into Sandy Harbor. She had emptied the liquor as soon as he left and no longer cared how angry he would be when he returned. It was a clear morning, and the sun was warm on her face, but the water still looked hard and gray. She blinked and felt as if she had just missed something. She looked intently out into the bay, and seconds later, it rose up in front of her. Immediately, she knew what it was. All the stories she had always heard with all of their divergent details now merged and came to life not fifty yards in front of her. It was black, and it undulated vertically through the water, and it did indeed seem about as big around as a barrel. And its head did, in fact, look about the size of a horse's. Its front end was several feet out of the water, and the sound of its churning and splashing was louder than the tide lapping against the rocks beneath her feet. The serpent splashed and glistened in the sun, and she reached out as if to touch it. In an unbroken motion, it turned and plunged toward shore. Before she could even consider backing away, it was directly in front of her. It raised itself up from the water, its head level with her own. Its liquid gray eyes regarded her calmly. There was a hissing sound, but not that of a snake. Rather of wind blowing through an enclosed space, or her husband's breath beside her when he slept without drinking. Her heart felt as if it would hammer through her chest, but she was not frightened. At that moment, she had no problems. There was nothing in her life but this wonder. She kept, out, she kept her arm outstretched, leaned forward, and as quickly as it had come to her, it left. By the time she lowered her arm, it was gone. The water seemed scarcely disturbed. She turned away and went back through town to her home. Two days later came the news that her husband was lost. She wept properly at his funeral and gave his clothes away. She had never told anyone ever what she had seen, not even when it had been sighted a week later, out from Loblolly Cove and later that same month further south near Hull. It was not so much that she feared ridicule as that she wanted to keep the event for herself. She had given everything to her family and her husband while they lived, but that moment at Bearskin Cove, that splash of water and shining strange skin was hers alone. Let the learned men have their theories, and let the foolish men try to hunt it like a whale. For her, the creature was not a disruption of the natural order, it was a reassurance, a guarantee of possibility. And she so needed that guarantee. When her grandmother had died, she and Joshua had claimed the old woman's house. Her grandmother had loathed him, thought him beneath her only granddaughter. Joshua swore she had lasted as long as she did solely to keep him out of her home. Modest as it was, it did for them, and certainly it had for Julia by herself. There was, of course, no pension for dead fishermen, but there was still a bit left of the small inheritance she had from her parents, and it went farther without Joshua working his way through it a bottle at a time. But it would not last forever. Sooner or later, Julian knew she would have to choose among gloomy options. Join the relatives in Boston, whom she barely knew, but who had grand visions of her becoming a governess on Beacon Hill. Strike off on her own and seek work in the inland factories. Or cast her lot with the likes of Mr. Babson, the man who had been kind of coming on to her earlier. These were not choices. These were sentences for the crime of being a widow. Now, as she leaned out her open window into the dark, she breathed deeply of the ocean and thought about a new and wonderful possibility, a town without rum, a community of responsible and sober men who cared for their families. Surely in such a place there would be true choices. She and Hannah and the rest would make it happen. Julia closed the window buried herself under the bedclothes, and dreamed of swimming with the serpent, giving it sweet herbs from Hannah's garden. And then a bunch of other stuff happens. Okay, the other piece I'm going to read is... um, the two disparate things that triggered this story were the fact that uh, in the small town of 600 people where I live in Vermont until very recently the nearest place you could get a cell phone signal was in a cemetery about a mile from our house <laughs> and uh, the title is taken from a road sign I saw as it's described in the story when my wife and I were driving somewhere or other I think it was in Maine uh, oh and also uh, just It is a story with it um, that is uh, trying to do certain things. And it is written in one continuous paragraph. And it's written that way because I read a story by Stephen Graham Jones that did the same thing. And I only steal from the best. (laughs) Uh, this is is called Road Dead. (coughs) There was no cell service in our town. The nearest tower was in the next county. The closest place we could get a signal was the cemetery north of town. Danny needed to make a call and the rest of us didn't have anything better to do. Jake drove and Danny called shotgun. Rob and I were in the back. Before the turn to the cemetery, there was a turn onto a dead-end road. And at the turn, there was a sign that said, Private Road, Dead End. It had been there ever since I could remember. But there were smudges over the private and the end, like someone had tried to erase them. And if you just look quick, it looked like the sign said, Road Dead. Well, hell, Jake said, and turned onto the road. What the fuck? I got to make my call, Danny said. Sorry, man. Got to check this out, Jake said. God damn it, I got to make this call. Make it quick, Danny said. Good luck with that, Rob said. I didn't say anything. I couldn't remember the last time I'd been on this road. Jake kept driving. It hadn't rained in forever and the car kicked up a lot of dust. The sky was overcast though and you couldn't see the sun. There were plenty of clouds. It just wouldn't rain. We got to the end of the road and there was a log cabin. That prefab shit, Rob said. No, this one looks old, I said and it did. The wood was so worn, it was almost shiny, and there were patches on it where it looked like someone had tried to chop the house down. Jake pulled over on the far side of the road from the house and cut the motor. He rolled his window down, and we could hear music coming from the house, classical music like the teacher played in Humanities Unit. It sounded familiar, and before I knew it, I said, Bach. Danny turned around and looked at me. La-di-da, professor, he said. Rob snorted like it was funny. Then Danny said to Jake, now what? Don't know, Jake said. Make up your fucking mind. I still got to make my call, Danny said. Jake looked at Danny and said, well, fuck, all right then. And Jake got out of the car and started walking towards the house. Dumb shit, always got to be chasing something, Danny said. Then he started checking his phone. God damn this sorry remote-ass place, he said. Rob snorted again. Fucking buck, he said. Jake walked up at an angle to the front door and moved toward the side of the house. He put his elbows out to the side and got up on tiptoe and made a big deal out of creeping up to the house like he was one of the Three Stooges. When he got up to the side of the house, he made another big deal of peering into what I guess was a window, and then he, he kind of shook and went forward like he had tripped, and then he wasn't there anymore. You couldn't tell if he had tripped and fallen in through the window or if he'd been pulled inside. Fuck, Rob said. Danny was still fooling with his phone. What happened, he said. God damn it, I said, and got out of the car. I walked across the road over to where Jake had been. There was a window all right, but it was closed. I looked inside. They didn't have any lights on, and it was hard to see much, but there were a bunch of people, more than you would have thought, would have been inside such a small place. Some were men and some were women, and they all wore regular clothes. I didn't see Jake one of the men was lying on some sort of table he was strapped down to the table and it didn't look like he had any clothes on he was shaking not like he was cold but like he was riding down a rough road a couple of times he seemed about ready to jump off the table but the straps held him down some of the people were holding things but i couldn't tell what they were You could hear the music, like the window was open. There was another window on the other side of the room that looked like it was covered in plastic until you realized the whole wall was covered in plastic, and the plastic had dark stains all over it. I looked again at the man on the table, and for a second I thought I knew him, but then the one standing closest to him looked up. It was a woman. I don't know if she saw me or not, but she stared like she was looking at something. I backed away from the window and into someone standing right behind me. I yelled and spun around. It was Danny. He and Rob had gotten out of the car and followed me over to the window. Fuck, 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 I said and ran for the car. Danny beat me there and got in and started it up. Rob and I piled in and we took off. We hauled down the road and turned and headed back up the main road toward the cemetery. What about Jake, Rob said. I don't know, I said. Danny didn't say a word, but when we got up to the cemetery, he pulled in and started driving up the path. The fuck you doing, Rob said. Danny kept on as fast as he had been going on the main road. A loose rock flew up off the dirt and cracked the windshield. When we got to the very back past all the tombstones, he stopped the car. The fuck you doing, Rob said. Rob's right. What about Jake? We got to go back, I said. You look through that fucking window. Fuck, Jake. It's his own goddamn fault, Danny said. Then what are we doing here? Why don't we go, I said. Danny looked at his phone and then looked at us. I've got a signal, he said, and got out of the car. It was Jake's fucking idea, he said, and walked away. Rob and I stayed in the car. I turned around and looked back at the main road. The tombstones ran down to the road in neat rows. One near the car had fallen over. Danny was standing by, talking into his phone low, like he was trying to keep a secret, but I could hear him. Hello, he said, hello, I looked at Rob. Now what, I said, but now he was looking back at the main road, so I turned back around. A car was pulling into the cemetery with another right behind it. About halfway up the path, the first car stopped, and then the second. The first car turned its lights on bright, and the driver got out, and then the rest of them, and Jake. Jake got out of the second car and started moving towards Danny, but Danny didn't notice. He was still talking into his phone, but now he was shouting, Hello? He kept saying, Hello? Hello? For li- thanks for listening. And there's more where that came from, right there in the back of the room. Thank you all very much. Um, thanks. That little cabin's there, too, but I haven't had the nerve to look in the window. Hmm? In uh, Shadows and Tall Trees, Mike Kelly's in
1: Thank you. That was fabulous. (laughs) So hang out, buy some more books. Please buy books. Come on. Make them happy. Make Greenlight happy. And uh, buy a drink. And uh, we'll see you next month. Thank you.
0: You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. I'm Rajan Khanna. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.